uh, about what God's doing there. We support the Pregnancy Center. We really look at them as um, a missionary outreach of our fellowship into the community. We support them financially. We have three members of our church who um, serve on the board, Jerry Green. I saw you earlier, Jerry. I don't know. Oh, there you are. Jerry is over there. Um, Justin, where are you? Justin Smith in the back, and then Mandy Reed, who is not feeling well this morning, so she didn't get to make it. But um, we occupy three spaces on the board through them, and um, at the beginning of the year, there was a big change in the board, and they were looking for a new director, and, um, and that God, uh, God prevailed in uh, bringing forth Stacy. So Stacy, you want to come on up and share with us about the Pregnancy Center and what God's doing and a little bit who you are. So you guys welcome Stacy, please. Good morning. There I am. <laughs> I have a really big mouth, so I could have talked to you anyway without the microphone. So I'm Stacy. Um, I'm a nurse. I have a OB past and cardiovascular and hospice for six years. So um, God brought me to the pregnancy center just in time for uh, leading this wonderful medical transition. And um, what a medical transition would look like is instead of having an ultrasound van come from Pueblo to do ultrasounds, which is a big thing. It's a big thing, right? As moms, when we can see that baby, we can hear that heartbeat. And if we can get other family members in, we have more chances of this family either staying together or at least co-parenting and raising a child instead of having the alternative like abortion. Um, very few adoptions are going on, but we're hoping we can impact that as well. Um, I was talking the first service about how nice it was just to see us up on the board out here as part of your mission field, which is fantastic because that's what this is, is a mission field. But watching this service and seeing the community happening out here before service and then coming in here, that's really what we're trying to do is also build community because community has accountability, right? It has support. A lot of these people that come in were whole family oriented, grandparents, moms, dads, we want to be able to help the whole family, but building community, some of these kids didn't grow up with parents at home, active in their lives. They have no accountability partners. They have no one who comes alongside and is able to guide them and, and mentor them and lead them into something. So we really want to build community because with community is a little bit of peer pressure, right? Well, that dad over there was doing that. Well, maybe that'd be a good idea for me, or this mom is doing such a great job raising her kids and, and disciplining and so that peer, the positive peer pressure can really work for us in community, but also community supports. And, and you see what that looks like to come in here on a Sunday and to know that somebody knows your name, that somebody would notice if you weren't missing. I mean, pastor knew that Mandy wasn't here, right? It's like to know that somebody is going to miss you and to know when you're having a bad day, that's so important. And a lot of these families do not have that. So we are looking at expanding through God's will, not our own, and having more community groups so that somebody knows when these, when these ladies aren't coming to group, you know, somebody knows that they're missing, somebody knows that they're having a bad week, somebody knows to check in on them, somebody knows that a young dad is having a real hard time because he's not able to see his kid all the time because he's just co-parenting. They aren't together. How can I come alongside you during that time? And you are helping us do that. So through financial support, which is great, Volunteers are wonderful, but your prayers, when you see us up on that board or if you have something at home to remind you to pray for us, your prayers carry power. 
our God knows exactly what we need for each week. And maybe I'm having a bad week, and none of you would know that, but God does. So through your prayers, we are able to really, truly reach out to our community and to build a positive life, not just pro-life, like let's save the babies, but pro-life. God says life abundantly. And that is how you are speaking abundance into our community. So thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks, Stacey. Um, we're, we're grateful to be uh, partnering with the um, Pregnancy Center as they are pro-life, but even with the new mission field where they're going into the medical transition. And as a team of volunteers and staff down there, really caring about the individuals who walk through the door with the goal of ultimately getting the opportunity to love on them and share Jesus Christ with them. And um, so we want to we wanna lift them up in prayer this morning um, as we begin our study. Um, we're going to be in Luke chapter uh, 19, so if you want to open up your Bible there, uh, we're continuing through uh, the Gospel of Luke, <clears throat> chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And uh, we're going to be in the first uh, 27 verses this morning, we won't make it through the whole chapter. Um, but as we begin, um, pray for the Pregnancy Center, pray for our time together here, and as you guys know, we try to lift up in prayer the other churches in the, the community in our, in our city as well. And <clears throat> this morning, I want to lift up the First United Methodist Church. Um, uh, I know that uh, they're, they've recently gone through a, a pastoral change. They have a new uh, pastor, Eric, got moved to a, another church. He has been uh, the pastor there, the reverend there of that Methodist Church for about three or four years, and um, they have a new one, Pastor Dennis, uh, Dennis Reese, and so we want to pray for uh, the churches that are going through that transition, and also um, that the Lord would meet them in, in their place of worship today as God also meets us here. So let's pray together, if you will. Lord, thank you for the Pregnancy Center. We thank you for Stacy and um, God bringing her on uh, as the new director of the Pregnancy Center. We also lift up the board and and to you as they come alongside Stacy and and um, uh, support her, Lord, and to um, serve her as she leads uh, that organization. And Lord, we pray for the other staff members as well and the volunteers. And pray God that you give them wisdom and discernment and provide for every need that they have as they minister to those who are in need in our community. We pray God that through them you would. Um, <clears throat> do the awesome work of, of uh, protecting life. And um, we know, Lord, that you're the giver of life and the sustainer of life, and that you, Lord, are your, your pro-life. And we love you for that, and we are grateful for the new life that we have in you. And so as they minister to these moms and these dads and these families who are in this <clears throat> time of transition as they become... Uh, pregnant and um, giving birth to new children. We pray, God, that you would help them to see that you have abundant life for them. And we pray for the financial needs as well. And Lord, um, as they make this medical transition and the the financial needs that are required for that, Lord, we pray you provide in in your perfect timing. And uh, for our brothers and sisters at the Methodist Church who are gathered together today to worship you, Lord, like we have gathered here, we pray for your Holy Spirit to 
be upon um, Reverend Dennis as he as he teaches your word, and we bring we ask God that it would be brought forth in truth. We pray that the gospel message would be taught, um, that people would come to know you, um, Lord. That people would not leave without having encountered you. And Lord, we desire we're here this morning to worship you, but to encounter you, Lord. We um, you've set a, you've set up a divine appointment for each one of us to be here this morning to meet with you, to hear from you. Um, to feel your healing touch, to be encouraged. And um, Lord, we ask that you would meet us in this place as we study your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So don't forget, join us at uh, the Duck Park after service. Uh, Also after service, there will be, I always forget to say afterwards, but there will be people up front that we make available to pray with you for any needs or uh, intercession that you might have. Um, uh, maybe some of the things that God spoke, speaks to you about during the service. You just want to come before God in prayer. Uh, please take the opportunity to do so after the last song of worship. And so after church, we'll go down um, and, and participate in the baptism together to be an encouragement to those. And uh, where the new event shelter is at down there at Duck Park by the, uh, the water pad, right down from there in that nice rock cove area where we met last time is where we're doing the baptism is again. So just so everybody has that clarity. Okay, chapter 19 of the Gospel of Luke, verse 1. It says, Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And and everybody said, Boo, tax collector. No. Okay. (laughs) And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of a short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste. He came down and he received him. He received Jesus joyfully. But when he saw it, but when, but when they saw it, the crowds of people and even his disciples maybe, um, for sure the, um, uh, the Pharisees, as we know what their attitude has been like up to this point, said that when they saw it, they all complained saying, he has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Lord, or he said, look, Lord, I, have given, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore, I restore full fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he is also a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. And I love verse 10, and it, it really defines the mission that Jesus Christ came to do. It It explains why Jesus is heading to Jerusalem at this point, as we know. Uh, I love the Gospel of Mark, which is really, that's the theme of the Gospel of Mark, as Jesus repeats that, that statement that we read there over and over again, that our Savior, God has sent His Son, God the Creator, leaving creation, or leaving glory, entering into creation to seek us and to save us, that which was lost, that those who are lost. And, and may, that, may that sit in our hearts and in our minds this morning as we read through and study these, these verses together. Now, 
as we look at the, the, the geographical and, horse, and historical context of the things that are going on here, I'm going to try to connect some dots for us so we get a real contextual understanding for what's going on. And, and, and as we geographically trace Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem, we know that it was not many months ago that Jesus was in the region of Galilee where most of his ministry had taken place during his three years where he was... Um, uh, healing people and, and spreading the good news of the, the coming of the kingdom of God. And um, in, in that region of Galilee, he, where he spent the majority of his time, it was to the cities that were in Galilee, but mostly to the cities that were along the seas of the shore of Galilee. But when he left there, Jesus followed the Jordan River, okay, which headed south through Israel all the way down to the Dead Sea. And <clears throat> the Dead Sea is in the region of uh, Perea, and Jesus has been following the Jordan River Valley, stopping off in these different cities, continuing to preach, continuing to heal, continuing to make these, um, uh, uh, to, to fulfill these appointments with these individuals that he stops for along the way. And we see that again. We saw that last week with Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus, the blind beggar, cried out to Jesus and that Jesus stopped. And here we see that also that Jesus stops now for this, this tax collector, this corrupt traitor is really who, who he was, and yet Jesus, Jesus stops for him. And we see, I think, from verse 5 where it says, where Jesus said, for today I must stay at your house, it really emphasizes that point that, that this was something that had been appointed for Jesus to do. Although Jesus had been sent to go to the cross at Jerusalem to be to be crucified, to be buried, and to rise again. We see that along the way through this journey, this was one of the things that God had appointed for him since the beginning of time, to meet with Zacchaeus. And the truth is, is, is God knows each of us in that same way. And these encounters that we have with God, whether it was at our time when we gave our, our, our lives and our hearts to him and received him as Lord, or as we continue to walk with Jesus day by day, that we encounter him. These are things that God has set forth. He seeks us and he's come to us so that we might have a relationship with him, so that we might know him more, so that we might experience him and receive him also joyfully like, like Zacchaeus has done here. And so um, Jesus is walking down the, the Jordan River Valley. The, the crowds of people are, 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 are following after him. Now, before he, he, he gets to the Dead Sea, Jesus turns to the west, and he then makes his way towards Jerusalem via the Jericho Road. And we talked about that road a little bit last week because the beginning of it is where, as he turned to head towards Jericho, that's where, that's where, Bartimaeus, or that's where Bartimaeus, the blind beggar, was at. And that, that trail, that road, you can still climb it today to reach Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, the, the, the highway that leads down from the Jordan, Valley, the Jordan River Valley up to Jerusalem follows that old Jericho Road. And the last time that we were there in Israel, we actually made our way over to the valley, the shadow of the Valley of Death, where there's a, a, a monastery down in there, and we could see that old Jericho Road. And, and if you ever wanted to do a, 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 a hike, you could do that still today. But and, and walk in the footsteps of Jesus. But this is where we're at. That's where we're going. That's going on. Now, when we consider the city of Jericho, one of the things you need to understand is it's a border city. And we best remember that from um, when Joshua led the children of Israel into the promised land. Remember, they crossed over the Jordan. The very first city that they came in contact with was, was Jericho. And it was a great walled city. 
Uh, historians say that the walls were so wide that you could run five chariots side by side on top of the city walls. And we know that God brought his people in there and they went to battle to take the land and God gave them victory as they walked around this city and, and God caused the walls just to crumble, to crumble down in a miraculous way. And so it was a border city and, and, and in a lot of ways it still is today as it rests in that um, uh, uh, Jordan Valley. It's, it's much different uh, now than, than what it was. And back in Jesus' day, being a border city, um, it, it uh, was also a, a very fertile region as, as it would um, uh, be sustained by the floodwaters of the Jordan River at that time. Um, and so uh, in addition to being um, an agricultural center um, and a border city, we know that um, being a border city, there would have been <clears throat> um, a lot of traffic and a lot of people coming through there as it was a gateway into Jerusalem. Now, the, like the Dead Sea, which, which is like over 1,000 feet below sea level, the city of Jericho is also below sea level, 825 feet to be exact, 825 feet below sea level. And being this, this eastern gateway up to the city of Jerusalem, in Jesus' day, travelers would have had to go that 17 miles on that road and climb nearly 3,300 feet to be able to reach Jerusalem. And this is where Jesus is at, and this is the last part of the journey that he's going to take. And since Jericho is in the Jordan River Valley, and, and one of the most fertile parts of the of the the, the, the um, region of Judea in its day, we also know that being a border city, it would also had what was which would have been a custom station, meaning for all the goods that would have been leaving Israel through this gateway city, and all of the goods coming into Israel, perhaps into into Jerusalem and throughout, would have all had to come through through um, Jericho at this time, and. Um, and the custom station there is where um, all the taxes would have been levied on, on, on product going in and product going out of the country. And that's significant for our story because in this story, one of the main characters, Zacchaeus, we're told, was a tax collector, right? And um, the chief tax collector, as a matter of fact, was a man, as we're told here, by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was responsible for making sure that Rome got their share um, of, of all of the product that was going in and out of the country through that city, but also of the citizens that were in that city. And um, because Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector, it meant that he did not take, he wasn't the one who was sitting behind the tables at the tax collecting stations. He wasn't the ones going to the businesses and receiving the taxes. He, being the chief tax collector, was responsible for a group of men who had this job. And, and he oversaw them and made sure that they were making their quotas. And he was a, very, he was a man of dignity uh, and a, a man of res- respect in a lot of ways. He was also greatly hated. We'll, we'll talk about that as well. But he being the chief tax collector would then take a percentage of the taxes that each of the men had collected before handing them on to the Roman government. And the Roman government would have a quota, but the chief tax collector, depending on how greedy he was, would then bump that quota and, 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 and collecting from the people so that he may line his own pockets and become wealthy. And we know that, that Zacchaeus, as we're told, was a rich man. Needless to say... Zacchaeus, as verse 2, being a rich man, 
He, we know that he could have become very rich with the job that he had been given by the Roman government and being the chief tax collector without ever having cheated people out of their money. But we know that, that he was. And it appears from what we read in verse 2 that Zacchaeus had not been honest in the amount of taxes that he had his men collecting, considering he told Jesus after he encountered him that he would make a commitment to restore back four times as much to those whom he had taken falsely from. So, so Zacchaeus, we get a real good idea of what this guy was. He, and we know that he was a Hebrew, as Jesus speaks in verse 9 about him also being a son of Abraham, correct? So he was a, a Hebrew working for the Roman government, viewed by the, Roman, by the Hebrew people at this point because of that as a traitor, a tax collector who was not liked anyway. Nobody likes tax collectors, right? And a dishonest one at that. Thief, a tax collector, a traitor to, the, to, his, to his own people. And so we get a really good idea of who Zacchaeus was and perhaps the reasons why the people responded to him in the way that they did. And um, even though Zacchaeus' name means righteous one, which is, seems to be kind of contradictory, it was clear that he had not done righteous things as a tax collector. So it's safe to say that Zacchaeus, being this unjust man, working for an occupying government, was not liked by the Hebrew people, even though he was a Hebrew of himself. So um, when Jesus was coming to town, we could understand why Zacchaeus probably had a hard time seeing him. Not only was he short, so you couldn't see over the crowd, but, it, but the crowd was not too friendly to let Zacchaeus get close so that he might see right? Unfortunately, um, um, not only could he get through the crowd, he couldn't see over the crowd. Verse 3 tells us, a man of short stature. And so when you realize, this is the cool thing, I love this part, when Zacchaeus realized that he could not get through the crowd to see Jesus, that there was no hope for him, he plotted the course. He could see which direction Jesus was going as Jesus made his way through Jericho and says that Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus went ahead. He went ahead of the crowd. He, actually, it says he ran ahead of them and then he found himself a tree, a sycamore tree, to, to climb up in, which would be near the place where Jesus was going to pass by. And the fact that Zacchaeus had, had run ahead of the crowd and climbed in the tree, it reveals a lot about Zacchaeus at this time, specifically in just how eager he was to see Jesus for both of these things that we read about him here, the, the running, right, and the climbing of trees, these were not things that Middle Eastern men did. As a matter of fact, this is not something that a Middle Eastern man would do today. It's, 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 it's below them. They're not into climbing trees or, or running. It's not, it's not a dignified, respected thing to do, especially for a high-ranking official or a dignified man, if you will, uh, like Zacchaeus. However, we might say that Zacchaeus' curiosity got the best of him, right? Certainly he had heard about Jesus, and we don't know for sure what was going through his mind at this point, but we can see that he was not going to be prevented from seeing who, who this Jesus guy was. And so he threw his pride and self-dignity, if you will, out the window and did what was necessary. I love this, that we see this twice in just two passages of Scripture. We see this exact same trait being exhibited by those who want to have an encounter with Jesus Christ. Bartimaeus was the same way, remember? Sitting alongside the road, blind and begging, hearing the crowds go by, you know, and someone says, is Jesus of Nazareth? And then Bartimaeus cries out, 
Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd tells him to shut up. Be quiet. And yet, what does he do? He cries out all the more, even louder. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And it was because Bartimaeus prevailed in crying forth to Jesus Christ, it says that Jesus stopped. Here again, we see the same determination, the same desire. And I have to say it again. We're reminded of that like we talked about last week of how there's going to be adversity as we try to seek God, as we, as we look for these, these moments, this, this encounter, uh, daily encounters in our own life with Jesus, there's going to be adversity. There's going to be struggle. Our own flesh, as I said, our, there's a single greatest enemy, the single greatest adversity that stands in our way of seeking after Christ and having a relationship with him. But there's also these external things like these men encountered as well, and they were not deterred. They did what was necessary. I love what John Calvin wrote about this. He once said this. He said, he said curiosity and simplicity are a sort of preparation for faith. Curiosity and simplicity are a sort of preparation for faith. And so as we walk in faith, you know, as we're moved by faith, we see that our curiosity is, is um, stirred up by God. Zacchaeus' curiosity had been stirred up by, by Jesus and who he was and what he had heard of him. And the simplicity that, that he responded with was a preparation for this faith, where faith then took action, where Bartimaeus, as well as Zacchaeus, you know, took the initiative to act in faith, respond in faith. And him running forward ahead of the crowd and climbing up into a tree to see Jesus and then responding to the words that Jesus had spoke to him while all actions of faith. And, and so with Zacchaeus, this curiosity and simplicity as a preparation for faith, we can see how this was, I think, certainly true of Zacchaeus here, who was acting, I think, more like a child at this time than some high-ranking official employed by the Roman government. But remember, remember what Jesus had said when we read last week in chapter 18 when Jesus was speaking to his disciples. He said, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And the determination, as well as the curiosity and eagerness that we see and we read about Zacchaeus demonstrating, is really, I think, an example of this childlike faith that Jesus spoke about that we're called to have. Not to be childish, but to be childlike. And where we go, I don't care about what people think of me. I'm seeking after Jesus. I'm going to receive all that he has for me with eagerness, with anticipation. And I point this out because this grown man did what most kids are so willing to do. And it's not that kids are willing to run and climb trees. It's, it's in that kids are, are typically more willing to set aside their pride, are they not? To set aside their pride, they're more willing to do that than we as adults are, and, and, and more than anything else, the <clears throat> Bible tells us what keeps, pride keeps, is pride is what keeps people from putting their, 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 their trust in Jesus. The Bible says that God resists the proud. And Zacchaeus, who had obviously heard about Jesus, probably thought that he was the one who was seeking Jesus at this point, Right? trying to push through the crowds, couldn't get through, couldn't see over the top, running ahead, climbing the tree. You know, from his point of view, he was like, I'm seeking after this Jesus guy. I got to know who he is. I got to see him. But the truth is, listen, this is really cool. The truth is, is that Jesus was seeking Zacchaeus. 
Do you see that? By that statement that Jesus made, it's in verse 5. Come down, for today I must stay at your house. Who was seeking who? Jesus had been seeking Zacchaeus. As much as Zacchaeus was looking for Jesus, Jesus was looking for Zacchaeus. He looked up into the tree. Oh, there you are. Been looking for you. I need to come to your house today. Come on down. I must stay at your house. In light of this, we're we're helped to understand, and I don't think we ever want to forget this, guys, is we must understand a key biblical truth that we by nature We're teaching, we by nature, the Bible teaches us that we by nature do not seek a Savior. Rather, it's a response. Our coming to God has been a response of the good work that God's done in drawing us unto him. And that's what happened with Zacchaeus. Listen, in Romans chapter 3, verse 11, it tells us this saying, There is none who understands, and there is none who seeks after God. It's always response, and it has been really this way from the very beginning. Think about it. Even when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the very first to break God's commands and transgress His will, we, we know that, that, that rather than they didn't go seeking after God, oh, Father, we sinned against You, please forgive us. What did, what did they do? The Bible says that they sought to what? Hide. And it was, it was God who came to the garden God who had walked with them in the coolness of the day before this time and time again where God came and God came to seek after Adam and Eve who had hid themselves from God. Why? Why did God come to Adam and Eve? For the same reason that we read why God came to Zacchaeus here and for the same reason why God has sent his son Jesus to us to seek and to save. And we know that when God came searching for Adam and Eve, it wasn't to destroy them for sinning, but to cover them and restore them back to the place that they had fallen from. Adam, where are you? Zacchaeus, where are you? Insert your own name because that's what's taken place in our own lives and continues to take place today as God continues to pursue us and have relationship with us. And so as verse 10 of this chapter declares, God through His Son Jesus has come to seek and save the lost. And guys, He does so always in the same way with every single person, including us, Zacchaeus and Adam and Eve and anyone down through the the, the whole account of the world. It's always been the same. And He does so by lovingly and compassionately drawing us unto Himself. He woos us into a relationship with Him. And this is what Jesus is doing for Zacchaeus. Now, we're not told how God had worked in the heart of Zacchaeus to prepare him for this meeting with Jesus, but you can tell that something's going on. Zacchaeus knows who Jesus is. He doesn't know Jesus yet until Jesus calls him down, but he knows who Jesus Jesus is. He's heard about him. And all of those things that he heard was preparation. It was God seeking Zacchaeus. And, And even though this is not accounted anywhere in Scripture, This is my opinion, and again, opinions stink. Everybody has one. Um, It's not a theological thing. It's not a doctrinal thing, so I want to share it with you this morning. But it's possible, I think, that Zacchaeus, in being prepared for this encounter as God was seeking him, I think it's possible that he had heard how Jesus had chosen and had even called a fellow tax collector by the man of a man by the name of Levi to come and follow him. Levi was standing behind his tax table, collecting taxes, 
And Jesus said, come follow me, leave it all behind. Another tax collector, one like him, Zacchaeus. Maybe he had heard about him. Not only that, he had been made one of the inner 12, a tax collector, an inner 12, one of the apostles, one of Jesus' closest. And maybe he had heard how, how this tax collector, one of whom he was like, Levi, who maybe he had heard how Jesus had even changed his name to Matthew. He said, you're no longer Matt, Levi, uh, you're now going to be Matthew. Because what Matthew means the name Matthew means, it means a gift from God. Jesus had taken this tax collector, Levi, and said, you're no longer Levi, you're Matthew. You're a gift of God, from God to me. And it's just speculation, but I think this is one of the things perhaps that Zacchaeus had heard about in regards to Jesus. Not just the fact that he um, you know, healed people and raised people to life and did all these miraculous things, but that he would choose somebody like him to come follow him, to invite him into relationship with him. And I think that Zacchaeus probably had, if he had heard about that, that was one of the things working in his heart to draw him to Jesus because in that moment Zacchaeus would have gone, if, if Levi could be accepted by Jesus, then maybe there's hope for me too. So it's just speculation, but it is evident that God had been doing a work in Zacchaeus who was so eager to see who Jesus was. And when Jesus looked up and when Jesus called out to this unrighteous man who was of a short stature, we're told in verse 6 that he did what? He received Jesus with joy. And the fact of the matter is, is even though Zacchaeus was a rich man, it's clear that he was spiritually bankrupt. He knew that he was in need of something, of someone more. And when he responded to Jesus, he freely received the most expensive gift in the entire world, which is eternal life. But before we move on, I want to point out two additional things. Listen, the first is how Zacchaeus, a rich man, really examples for us the statement that Jesus had previously made to his disciples when he said, what is possible, what is impossible for man is possible with God. Zacchaeus examples that truth. What is impossible for man is possible with God. If you remember back in chapter 18, when Jesus had this uh, this additional counter uh, uh, with a, a, another guy, a, a rich young ruler. Do you remember that guy? Not too many weeks ago we talked about him. When Jesus had that encounter with that rich young ruler, we know that he was just the opposite of Zacchaeus here who received jo Jesus with joy, that the rich young ruler went away from his encounter with Jesus as sad. Why? Because he was unwilling to give up what he loved most, his wealth. To follow Jesus and, and that guy, and, and, and in, in light of that, in light of that guy's decision, Jesus said to his disciples this. He said, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And man, Jesus' disciples, upon hearing that statement that Jesus had said, those shocking words, his disciples responded and then said to Jesus, well, then who then can be saved? Who can be saved? In answering this, this question, Jesus said the things which are impossible with, with men are possible with God. And I point this out because there are many people today, perhaps even like Zacchaeus, for one reason or another, who, who and maybe some people, maybe you here this morning, maybe it's you, who are wondering if who you are and what you have done has made it impossible for you to be forgiven and to be saved from the judgment that is coming. 
But the fact of the matter is, is God's hand is not too short to reach out and to save any man or woman from the deepest depths of sin if they will turn to Jesus who is come to seek and to save those who are lost. Because what is impossible for man is impossible for, is impossible with God. Not only possible, but desirable. God has a desire to save, to save you, to save our friends, our neighbors, our family members, our coworkers, those who believe that there is no hope for themselves. The other thing I want to point out is the fact that Zacchaeus, he was not saved. And, and, and we, we read this contextually and we might go, wow, Jesus said he was saved, but Zacchaeus had said, oh Lord, I'm giving all my, half my goods away and I'm, I'm going to give back to those who I had taken from fourfold. And, and then, then Jesus declares that salvation has come and to Zacchaeus' house today. And we might want to we might look at that and, and somehow conclude that Zacchaeus' salvation was tied to these works that he had done. And I want to point out that Zacchaeus was not saved because he promised to do good works. He was saved because he responded in faith, trying to see Jesus coming after him, running, climbing the tree, coming down when Christ called him, receiving Jesus with joy. So he responded in faith to the gracious words that Jesus had spoken to him, and that was his point of conversion. But having trusted in Jesus, we also see that Zacchaeus promised to make restitution to everyone that he had wronged, and, that, and this promise to, to stop stealing and to make right the wrong things he had done was really the evidence or the fruit of his newfound faith. You see, Jesus didn't tell Zacchaeus to get down from the tree, go and make his wrong rights, and then Jesus would come to his house. Zacchaeus, I'm going to wait right here for you. If, if you want anything to do with me, go make all these things right, and then I'll come to your house. That wasn't it. He simply said, come down. I'm coming to your house today. And I love that. You know, Also in the book of Revelation, it tells us in chapter 3, verse 20, the very words of Jesus, Jesus said this. He said, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens that door, he says, I'm coming in to dine with them and he with me. He doesn't say, he's not saying, I'm knocking, figuratively speaking, on the door of your heart and, and um, if you hear my voice and open the door and make sure the kitchen's clean and the closets aren't all cluttered and you know the vacuum, the carpet's vacuumed, you know, figuratively speaking, that you got to get all these things right in your heart and your mind and your life, and then I'll come into your clean house and then we can eat together. Jesus doesn't say that. If you if I knock on the door and you open it, I'm gonna come in because I want relationship. I want koinonia. I want fellowship with you. I want union with you. And I read this to point out that God who sent his son Jesus to seek and save the lost doesn't expect us to like spiritually or morally clean ourselves up before he comes to be with us. But the truth is many people wrongly believe, guys, that they have to quote-unquote get things right before God will accept them. Maybe many of you thought that for a long time before you received the Lord. Me too, I did. I thought that there was things that I had to do in order to be accepted. But then I'm reminded of passages of Scripture like, like it tells us in Lamentations that his mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. You see, and there's nothing, 
when, we, when we're told or when we believe that we have to get things right, whether when it comes to the Lord or to continue to maintain relationship with the Lord, we have to understand that that's just a lie that comes from our heart that wants to deceive us and a lie that comes from Satan that wants to, to think that, that, that God's sick and tired of our, of our, of our, of our sinfulness. And he, doesn't, he desires for us to walk in righteousness and he's equipped us to walk in righteousness and he's put his Holy Spirit in us and given us a new nature and praise God that, that, that sin no longer has power over us, that we've been set free from that and we walk as new creations in Christ Jesus. But we're confronted, I think, every day with our sinfulness and the enemy will whisper in our ear, God's tired of you. Look what you did again. But we have to remember that, that, that what, even what Romans chapter 5, verse 8 tells us, it says, God demonstrated his own love towards us. He was knocking on the door of our heart and wanting to come in even while we were still sinners. It says, God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The ultimate thing that he could do for us, he did when we were still in rebellion and at war with him. He died on the cross. And the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus not only has the power to save us, that he has the desire to save even the worst of us from the worst of our sins. And people need to hear that message. There are people out there like Zacchaeus who don't, that, that, that maybe hear a story of us and go, wow, God is able to save you and you've done that? Then he can save me too. And that, and that he uh, has a desire to do that. Furthermore, he wants to, he wants to save us and he, and, he, and he seeks after us even when we, like Adam and Eve, try to hide because of our shame. Isn't that a comforting thought? You see, Jesus is a gentleman and he stands knocking and he wants you to open the door to your heart, um, open up your life and let him in. But we need to understand Guys, that a saving faith, which we're talking about here, is more than just speaking pious words. A saving faith is more than having like really devout feelings, okay? To be sincere. A saving faith is based upon a relationship with Jesus. Listen, in when where we commit our lives to following after him, in where we commit to having this living union with him, in where he is Lord and we are servant where he is father and we are sons and daughters. In that, in, 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 that in, one of those, in whatever one of those examples you want to pick from, ultimately what we're doing in that is we're giving him permission to change our lives. And this is what Zacchaeus did as he received Jesus joyfully and then made the promises to restore back that which he had wrongfully taken. He knew what Jesus was like. He saw Jesus was a righteous man. And so he promised to restore back what he had wrongfully taken. And, and these promises revealed that Zacchaeus was a man who had been changed. Listen, he had been changed by that grace and that love of God that had been shown to him, which he received, and it filled him with joy. In verse 11, we'll read on here, see how much we can make through. It says, now, it says, now as they heard these things, he spoke of a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. And we know this is not just the crowds that are following after Jesus. This is also his disciples that weren't fully understanding um, the things that Jesus had spoke to him 
about what was going to happen in Jerusalem. And so because of that, Jesus now at this point in verse 12, therefore he said, a certain nobleman went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And so he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, do business till I come. But his citizens hated him. And they sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. So when the, when the king came back, he, he required an account, and he's holding them accountable, right? It says, then came the first saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you are faithful in very little, have authority, or you are, you are faithful in very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, you also be over five cities. And then another came saying, Master, here is your mina which I have kept put away in a handkerchief, for I feared you because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put the money in the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you that everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Now, it's important for us to closely consider verse 11 as we read these verses so that we get the right contextual understanding of what's going on. I already kind of elaborated on a little bit, but... In verse 11, we're told that Jesus spoke this parable because he knew that those who were following after him did not understand what was going to happen when they reached Jerusalem. And Jesus is now literally 17 miles away. In fact, they believed, they, we know they believed that Jesus would become, uh, they wrongly believed that Jesus would somehow become a national leader, a leader, a king who would set up a kingdom, specifically the kingdom of God, as the Messiah, the one sent, and, and set free the nation of Israel from their Roman oppression. That's what the, the popular thought was. And furthermore, another thing that we need to understand or keep in mind, and we'll see this is a greater, um, a, a, this part of it plays out even greater when Jesus reaches Jerusalem, but it's the Passover season right now. It's about time for the, the Passover feast to be celebrated. Thousands and thousands of people are joining together in Jerusalem, and Passover was a time of remembrance in which the nation of Israel remembered their deliverance from Pharaoh, from their, Egypt, from their Egyptian slavery and the bondage. And even still today, the Hebrew people believe that at the time of Passover is when the deliverer, the Messiah, will come. And so Jesus is gaining popularity. Thousands and thousands of people are following him. He's heading to Jerusalem. He doesn't really care about leadership, even the Hebrew leadership. He, he's not intimidated by them. And so people are going, this is the guy. They're excited for it. But this was not how things were going to happen. And like we read last week, Jesus had told them that when they reached Jerusalem, he was going to be arrested. He was going to be rejected. And he was going to be crucified and then rise again three days later. 
But in lack of their understanding, we see that Jesus graciously takes an opportunity to clarify things once again, but in, in order to further prepare them for what was lying ahead. And so he speaks this parable to them. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but the word parable literally means to cast alongside. And Jesus used these parables many times in his teaching to take something that was familiar or known to a person and to cast it alongside another truth, in this case a spiritual truth, so that a person would gain understanding. But for us today who live, like I said before, culturally and historically removed from the events of this time, we read of this example in verse 12 about a nobleman going to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then to return, and we, we don't really get the connection, perhaps like the Hebrew people did in this crowd. We don't have a king reigning over us. We don't know what it means. Why would a king have to go to a, why would a nobleman have to go to a foreign country in order to, to receive his kingdom and then to come back? We're like, what's this example that Jesus is giving us? And, 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 and um, because we don't understand the cultural and historical context, we kind of maybe miss out a little bit on the truth that's being taught. And so it appears, as I try to explain a little bit historically what's going on, it appears that Jesus is using this specific example, and, and, and he's probably referring to a well-known event that had taken place with Herod the Great. You guys have heard of Herod the Great, right? Herod the Builder. He ruled over Israel for a long time under, under the authority of the Roman government. He was a tetrarch. He was a vassal king, if you will. Um, he, he died in 4 BC, and, and it appears that's, that's what Jesus is referring to, is events that took place at the time of Herod the Great's death. Now, even though Israel was under Roman rule, Herod had been given power to rule over Israel, and this was due to the fact that the way that he came into power, uh, it coincided with Julius Caesar's death. You guys heard of Julius Caesar, a great Roman emperor. He was murdered by his own senators, so there's this betrayal and this conspiracy, and, and we know that there was these two factioning divisions in Rome at that point, and they all agreed that Caesar had to go, and that was, their, Julius Caesar had to go, and, not, and then that would create an opportunity for another ruler to come into place. And so Julius Caesar was, mer was murdered um, by his own senators, and um, what, what, what that gave the opportunity for was that gave the opportunity for Herod to make an alliance with one side, the one side who he believed would come into power. And that side was Octavian and Mark Anthony. And he was right. They rose to that power that, that was vacated when Julius Caesar was murdered. And because of this political strategy, Herod in 42 BC was given the title of Tetrarch, literally the king over Israel. However, upon his deathbed, he took that kingdom that had been given to him and he divided it into three regions and gave it as an inheritance to his sons to then rule over as kings. His, he had uh, the region of Galilee was given to Antipatis. The Golan Heights, which is even further north, was given to Philip. And the region of Samaria was in Judea, the area in which we're reading about and talking about now, was given to Archelaus. <clears throat> But all three of Herod's sons, they had to go to Rome, history teaches us. They had to go to Rome in order to have Herod's plan for succession to be ratified by Augustus, who was Caesar at that time in 4 BC when Herod died. 
And if you can imagine, the Hebrew people did not want Herod's sons ruling over them. They were just as evil as Herod the Great was. And so because of that, they sent a delegation of 50 men to argue their case before Caesar Augustus as to why these men should be left in power. And um, ultimately, Augustus sided with Herod's sons ratified their inheritance, and appointed them as the new rulers over their new regions. So they were these guys, these noblemen, who had gone away and came back to take their kingdoms. In light of this event, which the people in the crowd are familiar with, it appears that Jesus was making a comparison between these men who went to Rome to have their kingdoms ratified and between himself in order to clarify things about himself and things about him setting up the kingdom of God at this time, specifically in regards to the fact that he was of nobility. People knew that. The one man on the, the even, even the blind beggar, Bartimaeus, was Jesus, son of David. He was of the tribe of Judah. He was a descendant. He was of noble birth. Not only that, we know that Jesus was of ultimate nobility, being the son of God. And he would have also, he would also, Jesus was saying that he was also going to have to go away, but in doing so, he would return, as verse 15 points out, having received his kingdom. And we know that the Bible tells us in the book of Philippians that because Jesus humbled himself, even to the point of death on the cross, that God has given all things to him so that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord over all. And there's a day coming when Christ will come back and he will set up his kingdom. We know this, and this is what Jesus was speaking about, and this is what this parable is talking about. And in this parable, we'll talk about three different responses of the servants who were left behind to do the command of the master. And I'm going to summarize these for you because we're running out of time. But we have the first guy who, who was given this, these 10 minas. By the way, a, a, a mina is about three months' wages. So 30 months' wages with 10 minas. A lot of money. The first guy who was entrusted with that money doubled the money, and he made a profit for his master. The second one made, made half as much, five minas, on top of the ten that he was given, and, and he also um, brought a profit back for his, for his master. And so as we look at Jesus being the nobleman and these servants and what they were called to do as the parable then shifts attention to the servants away from the, the nobleman who came back to take the kingdom, if Jesus is the, is the, is the nobleman, then we, his followers are the servants. That's the comparison that's given to us. And what we can deduce from this is that God has also entrusted to us minas, things, gifts. And he has an expectation for us, the things that God has gifted us with, the things that God has entrusted to our care. He expected us, he expects us to use them in a way that's been entrusted to us so that we might bring a profit for his kingdom. And we see that those who had done this, those who were faithful, were rewarded, and those who were not had what was given to them taken away. If the worship team wants to come up, we're going to kind of wrap it up with this. We know that two were commended. The one who, who at least held on to it, you're thinking, well, well, at least he kept it, even though he didn't get a profit. He kept it safe. He wrapped it in the handkerchief. He thought he was doing a good thing, and he gave it back. But that he didn't use it for the intended purpose by which it had been given. <clears throat> even though he knew exactly what his master was like. And then we have a total of 10, correct? But only three give an account. And so we have seven who are unaccounted for. Seven of the servants 
who, who appear, I think the un, undisclosed determination that we can conclude from this is that, is that they gave no account, they were not called to account because they didn't even have left which had been given to them. And perhaps they didn't think that the master was ever going to return as he had gone off to a faraway kingdom. Maybe they didn't think he would receive what was going to be given to him, that it wouldn't be ratified like what we'd, what we'd read in this comparative illustration of the historical events. And so they went and took what had been given to him and spent it on themselves, and it was gone. So the main point of this parable in regards to the application to our lives, guys, is, is the faithfulness of servants to do what they had been entrusted with while their master was gone. And we've all been gifted things. The greatest gift that we have all received is our salvation, which has come through the good news message of God and where we're saved by grace through faith. That's a gift that we've been entrusted with. That's a mina that God uses in our lives into the lives of others, and he expects for that to be casted out so that it might bring forth a profit and a return. This good news message that we've received, this gift of salvation, isn't something that we're to hold on to and hide from the world around us. And Jesus is going to ask us one day, what have you done with this good news message, this salvation you've received? We're also given spiritual gifts, are we not? And the spiritual gifts are given to us so that the church may be strong, that we may be strengthened so that we can do the work of kingdom building together. And the Bible teaches this clearly in the book of Corinthians. When one of us isn't using our spiritual gifts, when one member's not functioning, then the whole body suffers. And so you guys have gifts that God has given to, to you so that we could be best equipped to do the work that God's given us. So we work together as one body, even though we're many members with these spiritual gifts. And then certainly, we've also been given material gifts, all of us. And we need to ask ourselves on a daily basis, Lord, what, how would you have me use the things that you've given me for your kingdom, for your glory, that I might bring forth a profit with the things that you've entrusted to me? And it's when we understand that God requires faithfulness from us with the gifts that we've been entrusted us that we will be grateful. Listen, guys, that we will be grateful for what we have been entrusted with. And so as we consider our faithfulness to God's gifts with the reminder that he is going to return, let us, I, I pray that he would, we, we, we should let him consider us, may he consider us faithful stewards of what we have been entrusted with. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for these words of encouragement this morning. First through Zacchaeus, where we're reminded of, of the fact that you stop, that you have sought us, that you seek us, that you desire to have relationship with us, that you knock at the door of our hearts still today, wanting to come in and possess every part of it. And so, Lord, if there's any part that we've held back from you, any place that, that we're ashamed of, Lord, that you already know about, I pray that we would turn it over to your control. And I pray, Lord, that we would be found as faithful stewards on that day when you come back. We know that the kingdom has been appointed into your hands and there's a day coming when you're going to rule and reign. And the Bible tells us that we're going to rule and reign at your side. And Lord, so the things that you've given to us on this earth, may we please be faithful with them and know your will and work and serve in accordance to that. Lord, we love you and we worship you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys stand. And